So welcome to the adventures of Alice and Bob, the podcast, where we take a peek behind the server room door and shine a light on some of the mostly unsung heroes behind the keyboard to find out what motivates them, what keeps them up at night, and what lessons they've learned on their journey so far. I'm James Maud, a cybersecurity researcher and your host for today's episode. And today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the legendary security expert, penetration tester, and founder and owner of Secure and Secure Academy. It is, of course, the one and only Paula Yanushkovich. Paula, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, lovely. Thank you so much, James, for invitations and uh, truly always a pleasure. <laughs> now, Paula, you're normally traveling the world. So whereabouts have you joined us from today? So today I'm actually... Um, podcasting from uh, Warsaw uh, in Poland and uh, I am right now uh, back home for quite a while uh, because uh, it's right now the holidays break so it's time to uh, get some rest after a super busy super heavy I would say year um, in in cybersecurity. finally when gates opened and you are allowed to travel uh, then uh, lots of lots of our customers actually requested uh, us in general, not only myself, to be on site. Uh, so that has been a very intense year. And uh, fairly, it's really hard to remember what happened in 2022 already, because there has been a lot. Absolutely. It's been a crazy year. And thank you for taking the time out to join us today at the end of that, that very busy year. So looking back at your CV, you've achieved so much in the past 15 years and done so many different things. I'm just curious, where did this all begin for you? Where, where did your love of technology first start? Yeah, thank you for, for, for this question. Uh, fairly, I've been always engaged in, with technology. And uh, even as a kid, when I had my first computer, uh, which was when I was in the primary school, or uh, fairly even earlier than that, um, I was uh, very much interested in how things work. And that kind of works a little bit as a little feature that you could apply to every cybersecurity consultant out there. Because if there is a new vulnerability, new system, new solution, um, new uh, update, and so on, you need to know how that works. And uh, that's basically how it started. And later on through my whole time um, in, in terms of my career, uh, I've been uh, also in the high school where uh, basically I was uh, having the, the class uh, with the profile of uh, uh, INF, as we call it, MAT IT. Uh, as, and uh, later on, um, yeah, the university. So pretty, pretty straightforward way uh, to cybersecurity. And again, uh, cybersecurity is something that's never changing um, in terms of excitement, uh, but uh, to changing a lot in terms of new things. And that kind of combination is something that I love the most. And how did you first get into the, the industry itself? Did you start off through an, an IT role at a company? Yeah, so so uh, I actually started with um, like professional uh, job that I was actually getting paid for when I was just doing my like first practice uh, as a part of the um, university uh, university first grades. I was doing some things uh, in the past, but this was more like administering the school network, um, being engaged here and there, not always really getting paid for that. But uh, but the first part was the the practice, uh, and then later on I started to work in a consulting company that was doing um, IT, so kind of like a managed services provider, focusing maybe a little bit uh, on security, but not enough for me. So I had to establish uh, Secure, which actually happened uh, 14 years ago, uh, so quite a long time. And uh, since then, I've been spending my time on uh, growing the company. That's excellent. And for people listening, Secure is spelled C-Q-U-R-E. Um, so if you're looking for that, the secure.pl, uh, I think, and secureacademy.com. What was it that brought you into founding your own company? Because that's quite a big step to take. Um, hmm. <laughs> Many reasons, really. Uh, one of the reasons was that I really wanted uh, to do what I want to do. <laughs> 
So in, in, in cybersecurity, I was thinking that uh, at the time that, hey, I want to do only pen tests, or um, that was why my first uh, motivators out there. Um, and uh, and then within, with, within the company that I was working before, uh, even though I wanted to do pen tests, uh, there were not enough pen tests for me. So uh, so simply, uh, I wanted to, to do what I want. And then there was a moment where uh, I established uh, Secure. And also, I really felt that um, that's kind of coming from my character. I really like to be an individualist in what I do. And uh, I really like, like listen to my intuition, even though sometimes it may not always go a good way. Uh, but even though I will make a mistake, I kind of like that too, because uh, this is an opportunity to learn, uh, as you say, uh, on your own skin. Uh, so um, yeah, that's that's why. Uh, and this is how this, the, the, the whole adventure started. And this is why uh, I decided to open it up. And was that a, a full-time job? You threw yourself into it full-time or was that a side project while you were still working in other roles initially? Mm, actually, um, I literally, um, I established a company when I was working um, in the in the, uh, the consulting company because I really needed it anyway for uh, finance, financial purpose. So I was just issuing an invoice simply. So for that reason, I needed that. But then I thought, hey, since I already have my entity, uh, then why don't I just start things uh, by myself? And I was already engaged at the various conferences. I was already already speaking there. I was invited at various events uh, to share some some part of the research knowledge and so on. So I thought that well, okay, that's what I really love to do. And, and so sharing knowledge, also researching, doing the fantas, and um, why I should spend more time on doing some stuff for the company that are not part of my interest. And uh, therefore, I kind of made a little bit of a cut. So I said, okay, this is my resignation. This is the moment I'm starting secure. And when I opened my eyes, the day it actually started, and that was in November, uh, 14 years ago, uh, I thought, okay, so my adventure begins. Probably it's going to be hard. But, you know, I was at that time uh, quite young. And um, when you are young, it's easier to take some risks, I would say. And you do not always realize uh, what you are stepping into. But uh, gladly for me, it worked out. So <laughs> a little bit of luck, maybe a lot of hard work, definitely sleepless nights um, and a uh, lot of bad situations on my way too, uh, which uh, only motivated me even more uh, to do what I do. So yeah, that, that's the adventure. I think that's a, a fantastic story of, of just following your passion there. How how has the um how has the company grown over the years? Because I know you you're quite large now and and certainly global, aren't you? Absolutely. So so when I established it, uh, I was the only one. So that was uh, basically uh, how it started. And uh, right now, after fourteen years, we've got uh, almost fifty people on board. Uh, literally almost because it's 49 uh, and um, yeah it's super super exciting we are placed in four locations in the world uh, in the US in Emirates in Switzerland and also in Poland and um, pandemic uh, kind of uh, slowed down the growth but that's uh, I believe for most of the companies because uh, I really want to open a chapter in Singapore but let's see uh, how that's gonna uh, happen because Singapore was quite close during the pandemic so there were not that many options that uh, we had but right now it's better so uh, jumping back to the subject and um yeah, lots of lots of different consultants that we are hiring right now as well. And um, it's always a big challenge, I'll tell you, because in cybersecurity, it's very hard to find a good talent. So that has been always my struggle. And um, I'm trying to combine within our team two features, <laughs> so to say, if I can call it this way. One, one thing is a character of a person. So it needs to be an honest person that does a good job, it's hardworking, not afraid to share knowledge or not afraid to say, I don't know. And at the same time, a person that is just willing to know more and um, being also a team player. So I'm trying to, to find all of that. And uh, once we find a person like this, we are totally doing a lot to make sure that this person is on board. <laughs> 
I think that those skills that you've mentioned there and the things that you're looking for are reflected in, in the services I've seen the company delivering. So one of the things I found particularly compelling about Secure as a, as a provider of services and training is that you actually have a real passion for sharing knowledge and helping people understand the problem, not just telling them that they've, they've got a problem. So I see things from you helping people through security postures and the consultancy, you do the academy, you've got seminars and workshops, and they really deliver a lot of practical knowledge at multiple levels, whether it's for helping executives understand things or deep diving into some really technical Windows internals issues. And in an industry with a lot of, sort of gatekeeping around security knowledge and skills, what drove you to take this kind of open approach to empowering people? Oh, that's a very good question. Um... I think I think um, mostly because I really like to share knowledge. So that's just I like to share something that I find that that is interesting. I don't think that I should be the only person knowing that. So that that's kind of naturally comes from uh, the the character I think, and. Um, yeah, I'm quite quite uh, straightforward. So if I like something, I say I like it. If I don't, then I don't. And then if there is something interesting to share, then I will always put it on the table. And uh, I kind of feel that it's especially in cybersecurity is so important to if you want to share knowledge, uh, if you want to be in that position to explain everything in the background, so that whoever is receiving this information is gonna actually treated as useful. Uh, I totally agree with you regarding the type of information, how sometimes information is spread. It's like, oh, this is how you can exploit that vulnerability. And thank you. Yeah. So no, no. Uh, cybersecurity in general, um, I think delivered with a good taste is when you, for example, even deliver the attack, you will explain that, okay, this attack is possible because of this, this and that. It will not be possible if you would implement this, this and that, because it's always a rainbow of situations and it's never black and white that, okay, this is bad or this is good. Like it's too short for me to believe. So um, this is how I'm, for example, delivering uh, workshops as well together with my team because I'm also building that kind of a presentation culture in, in our team that you should always like be yourself, say everything you've got about a certain subject. And uh, if people's going to have questions, then I believe that they are there for um, that to ask them. So um, let's price knowledge and uh, nothing else. As simple as this. And on the, the topic of that kind of skill sharing and sharing out knowledge, one of the things I saw you do at, I think it was Black Hat Asia in 2019, was you released the um, CQ tools. So a collection of, I think, was it around 40 tools, if I remember correctly? Yes, yes. Something around that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And th those tools were developed for your own team's pen testing engagements, but you decided to share those with the wider community, demo them on stage, explain to people how they could be used to find issues and, and frame them in the context of the problem. What was the, the process? What, how did you decide to develop these tools and then to just release them for people to use themselves? Yeah, so, so the, the thing is that we are developing our tools uh, fairly for the past 10 years. And uh, when there was an opportunity to share them already on the arsenal uh, at Black Hats, and uh, right now we are actually, uh, as a team, speaking as... Um, Every black hat actually for the tools and sometimes sessions and trainings and so on. So uh, right now, actually, we have over 200 uh, of tools that we have wrote, uh, we have written actually in-house. Uh, but um, the reason why we decided to share them is that because we simply use them for our pen tests and uh, we have nothing to hide. It's actually even better to show that you got them. So maybe we could contribute in some kind of an interesting way uh, to... Um, what's what's out there in cybersecurity. Of course, there's going to be always people that will like it and not like it, say that, okay, that could be done in a better way or in a worse way. So fairly, we don't care. Um, as long as, of course, someone will find it useful, then it's great. But we're not really doing it, you know, just for that. We truly use these tools. And uh, for us, they work. And if there's going to be chance of improvement, we'll always do it, obviously. So uh, we thought it might be a good idea actually to to share some stuff that we do. I think it's really good. And I think it, it, the tools themselves, uh, from the ones I've seen, do a really good job of demystifying a lot of the things behind pen tests and, and security challenges that people face. They, you know, 
they are able to do things in the operating system. You're able to perform lateral movement and privilege escalation attacks without knowing necessarily how to code things or how to interact with the low-level Windows APIs or things like that. So is that important to you, just breaking down those barriers to entry into the, the cybersecurity world? Uh, very much. And and uh, thirdly, uh, within our team, we really like to do research. And we've got a really nice research team as well um, in the in the team. And uh, as far as we know, uh, we, are, we are the first ones and the only ones that reverse engineered the data protection API, so the cryptographic platform in Windows, and we wrote and shared uh, tools for that. Um, again, I think uh, it is inf- important to know how information that you store in Windows that in an encrypted form, of course, whether it's a document being encrypted or whether it's a password that you store uh, using Windows API, maybe in a browser and all these details. It's important that when people do it, even on the IT side, even administrators, for example, or cybersecurity specialists, it is important to know whether this data is secure or not. I'm asking myself that question. I want the answer. And who's going to answer this? So I will try to find the answer in the internet. And if I don't find it, then I drop the question uh, on the table within our team and then we start research. So, yeah, that's why I was saying before that I really like prize uh, the need of knowing more. I really enjoy learning and I really enjoy uh, explaining some things that uh, people may also want to know in terms of cybersecurity. I think it's just, uh, uh, again, a, a bit of a character here. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. And of those things that you're doing, obviously you your company now offers a range of services. Personally, you're involved in a lot of activities. You're a you know, Microsoft security MVP, trainer, keynote speaker, author, advisor, I'm sure there's many other things that I'm not listing there. What is it that you know you most enjoy about your job and you're most passionate about? You've, you mentioned a couple of areas there. Is there anything in particular that really you would love to spend more time doing if you had the opportunity? Hmm. I would love to have more time that I could spend on even more research. Uh, so I really like to sit and find out things. Um, that's uh, even even for like no reason at the end, or maybe there's going to be no tool or nothing new that's going to be created. It's quite an important thing because we get a perspective on something. Uh, so yet another another interesting uh, subject to the list. Uh, I really also enjoy um, about my job to not that much travel, but more like to see people, meet people at uh, in travel or also at the conferences because there's always some kind of interesting conversation that you are jumping into. I'm also not sitting silent, so I'm also the one that actually starts these conversations. And um, yeah, sometimes you'll get something interesting out of that, sometimes you won't, but uh, at the end uh, you just met another person that might have the same or different kind of a problem uh, in, in terms of IT. So it's uh, good to know that uh, people, for example, have similar opinions uh, about uh, different subjects. Yeah, that's why um, I I think I will never get bored with that. So I think meeting lots of people in cybersecurity that are open, that are willing to share, that are just nice people out there. uh, That's something that is the nicest part. And I really have an opportunity to do it. So that's even uh, nicer. That's that's really nice to hear. And I think that's one of the... The rarities uh, that you come across in the industry, people often say there's a shortage of cybersecurity professionals, but often it's the people who want to both understand the problem, do the research, but then want to talk and evangelize that and engage with the wider community. And that's, uh, I think, it's definitely something we need a lot more of. One of the things that I always enjoy is your presentations, particularly your keynote presentations at, at conferences Thank and you. events. <laughs> And no, no, you're absolutely welcome. It, it, you do some really engaging things, you know, that's things like the hacker's perspective on your infrastructure, just really making people think about the attack surface and, and what's out there and what can be done about these things. When you're preparing for these events, when you're creating those presentations, what is it you want audiences to take away from a, a Paula J keynote? Huh. Uh, so it depends, of course, on the on the like a major theme. Uh, that's very important because uh, all these demos, uh, okay, they might be exciting and they might be working for a single subject, but may, they might not create uh, the whole story. And uh, when I'm, for example, delivering the keynote, uh, then I'm really thinking about multiple aspects here. First, keynotes usually supposed to be a little bit entertaining, and I'm not trying to be funny. But I'm tr- trying to be 
someone who could drive through story or through a demo to a conclusion. And um, this is something that I really pay attention to, that every demo has a good summary, good conclusion, um, that maybe they are connected with each other and um, that at the end, you're going to actually take something useful, even though it's a keynote. It doesn't have to be a summary of what's going on in this world. Uh, but it, it's better that when it actually introduces something that someone will even like maybe on a technical side of the road could see and say like, oh, okay, that could happen in my infrastructure. So I'm going to make some note. Yes, it, it's a keynote, so maybe not always that many details, but um, but uh, I'm going to explore this subject further. And uh Keynote is very important uh, to me, uh, or in general, keynotes are quite important for me because, um, again, they have to create a conclusion that is going to stay in the people's heads, and uh, that's going to be, uh, you know, this um, flavor that we're going to uh, be with uh, through the whole conference. So, uh, the more I'm able to build a complete story about what is going on, for example, hackers' perspective. Okay, but let's build a line to it. Yeah? So for example, imagine user is working from home, then we've got a pandemic or we had a pandemic. Uh, so now how do we perceive user with the hacker's eyes? And then from that, there's a whole story that starts. And uh, to me, always, it has to be very logical and it's just not just a bunch of demo drops. So um, yeah, that, that's kind of my preparation to it. I think that's really nice to hear that the, the approach you take there of kind of the logic behind it and building an argument for people and framing it in the context of what's going on in the world, what's going on in IT, what's going on with with people as well. That's um, really good to see. And, and you casually mentioned demos a few times. You know, you're one of the the speakers where you will not only talk about a technical point, but you'll just demo it and say, this is how you would go and look for this issue or do these things. And I think that's why people engage quite readily with you because you're providing them with the tools and that that thing we talked about earlier of sharing the knowledge not just lecturing them on everything you know that fear uncertainty and doubt that that resonates throughout the industry of just scaring people about topics and you're very practical and reassuring about these are how you can approach these these challenges so that's that's really nice advice there i think for people doing not only keynote presentations but just evangelizing security within their own businesses right that just being able to tell that narrative and frame it in the business context. So talking about narratives within businesses, let's shift gears a bit and talk about some of the interesting moments from your career. Now, people often talk about dealing with internal threat actors, and I think a lot of businesses seem to think that they aren't real and all their staff love them very much. But I believe you've experienced this firsthand and you've come across a rogue admin. So maybe you can set the scene for this incident and how you came to be involved in dealing with it. Yeah, so um, I've been uh, through my whole life participating in many different incidents or rather incident response where, uh, of course, um, many, many situations uh, were discovered that uh, surprised pretty much everybody. And one of the most interesting uh, situations I've been at was actually a project at the customer site with an administrator that was uh, sabotaging uh, the company. And uh, that was um, like a factory kind of like an environment. And the point was that um, this guy was putting down a bunch of uh, components of the infrastructure, causing uh, quite a huge financial loss because that, uh, let's say, factory uh, being also an international company were, was stopped for over two and a half days. And they lost uh, through that time uh, approximately 4 million euros. So, um, yeah, it was very serious, yeah. And um, there was this moment where IT management said, well, this is the another time that this situation is happening, so let's call for some experts uh, to come and then uh, analyze the whole environment and actually search for some kind of evidence that this is just not a regular incident, that might be something wrong. And uh, for them, it looked like not very random thing that's happening to them. And this is kind of what caused the, the whole process. I think that is great because uh, if they really did not pay attention to details, they might actually keep going like this. But they did pay attention to that. So um, once, uh, of course, uh, we arrived, uh, then uh, we started the analysis, extracting data from various places and so on. And at the end, 
uh, we managed to get access as well to the laptop of this guy, where uh, there was a bunch of bunch of information that we could find. Also, there were gaps in the event logs. Uh, and uh, when you are dealing, for example, with EVTX uh, file, uh, then it's not that easy to edit it. Um, we actually wrote a tool, by the way, that you can use for edit to edit uh, EVTX, but it's a naturally secure file with uh, lots of digital signatures inside of uh, single entries and chunks of entries and so on. So it's basically, could, could you think that maybe this guy potentially was deleting blocks from the event lock? And uh, we kind of doubt it. So um, what he was actually doing, as it appeared later, he was booting up from the live USB. And from that live USB OS, he was uh, crushing uh, pieces of the environment. And then um, he was returning, knowing what happened. Everybody loved him because he was fixing the problem. Yeah, so he is the one that is not replaceable, and he's, he's amazing. But that was just kind of a fireman syndrome. And then after we found it out, um, there, there were lawyers engaged. Obviously, he was dismissed in a really nice way. Uh, as well, uh, it's also a PR problem, so you have to be in a good relationship, even though you got that kind of situation. And um, we could think that maybe he he should be like, you know, even going to prison for that kind of stuff. But uh, he was actually dismissed with uh, paying a couple of months uh, in advance of salary uh, to say nice goodbye and just, just forget about everything. And uh, sometimes you have to do that. And uh, yeah, we just need to keep going. So that was quite an incident, actually. Uh, exciting with a story that required also writing some tools on site. And our developer um, was, was Michael, was actually uh, helping to, to write uh, tools. So it was uh, yeah, totally cool project. That sounds fascinating. So when the company initially approached you, they knew they had an issue. They didn't think it was some run-of-the-mill, just IT issue. Did they actually initially suspect it was an insider doing these things? Or did they think it was maybe outside influence? No, they actually uh, suspected that guy um, because he was too happy for what was going on. Everybody was kind of scared, but you, you, he couldn't apparently hide his emotions. So he was like uh, less nervous than everybody else. And then when we received a call uh, from, from our customer, and they were actually our customer um, before, it's just that a different. it was a different sub that was experiencing a problem. So we had to travel to the a physical factory kind of location and um what what um what what they said was simply that hey we we think we've got like a internal sabotage case that this guy is doing something wrong and you don't have to focus on him but in general we think that there is something wrong going on around him so here we go i like the fact they were suspicious of a happy person in it because you don't come across many of those so that that must have been an outlier <laughs> exactly Exactly. And uh, were the motives for this person just purely that they wanted job security and they thought they could make themselves the hero by creating problems that they could then quickly fix or were there more nefarious reasons? Yeah, there were actually different reasons. So he was sharing information uh, that he was gathering from that company with the competitor, as I later found out. So um, yeah, there was there was a bigger motive actually, and uh, apparently it's uh, also one of the maybe not that common problem, but it's something that happens uh, quite a lot in the companies that uh, competition uh, has a person who is hired actually by the other uh, competitor by, by the other company for example within bank and um that person just uh, simply steals information and uh, passes it to the competitor and in terms of IT it is also quite a thing because like what kind of a process is for HR to check on the IT person and if this person is privileged and not being monitored appropriately for every for everybody's sake then is domain admin is trustworthy person or not? Because I've seen a situation where a privileged person appear appeared to be actually the worst. So um, that monitoring part is uh, super important. Not only nowadays, it has always been. Absolutely. And what, what other advice would you give to any companies who are worried about this happening to, to them? You know, human beings uh, are very surprising and worth trust. It's a very unpopular world uh, word in cybersecurity. Sometimes, unfortunately, 
cybersecurity specialists or companies. They have to trust someone. And uh, simply the advice would be good screening, but we cannot really prevent uh, things that are in someone's mind. Uh, but also well-established monitoring and uh, privilege access management, uh, as simple as this, because uh, anything anything around the ways how you um, execute uh, different, even simply saying commands, yeah, or where do you log in, or what is your daily routine. So these kind of things should be also monitored because uh, it's not that, you know, this one day on Monday person suddenly starts to attack the company. It's usually a well-crafted, well-prepared, ongoing uh, spread in time attack. Uh, so uh, well-established monitoring, also monitoring irregularities in the environment. That's basically the direction to go to. And I can imagine that every, not every company can uh, do that, but that's just something to think about in the future. So to monitor the most privileged ones for your and their own sake as well. And what was the um, human impact among the rest of the team? Did you know that's a, must be a, an interesting thing to be involved in a team where someone's effectively betrayed you? Did it, how do you think the team found the incident? Oh, you know, one of the guys get promoted, <laughs> so it's not that bad <laughs> at the end. Silver lining. <laughs> Here we go. Because um, th that uh, guy who was actually misbehaving was uh, like the major one. Yeah, so he was, I don't remember his position, but let's say he was like a team leader uh, amongst admins or something similar to this. So um, if if someone is behaving in that kind of a way and it's over nice, it's also not very good. So probably they had some or similar footsteps as we all had that this this guy was just uh, quite strange, if I may say it this way. And um, probably if someone is acting in that kind of way and doesn't really have, you know, the same body language and it's just not consistent in what someone does, then you just don't trust this person. And uh when there is no trust in a team and there needs to be something like that, uh, at least to some distinct end, uh, you, you really don't feel comfortable working with that kind of person. Sure. So actually, instead of being a negative thing, it was probably a positive thing for the team bonding over, you know, this person they were uncertain about leaving and then them being able to secure their systems and, and get on. That's a, It's really interesting. It's one of those things that, you know, we often hear that the use user you know use case of you've got insider threats they have these privileged accounts you should be aware of them but very few times do you actually hear you know examples like that where they have been caught covering their tracks and then uh, sadly you know like you said they got quite a nice exit out of the business for pr reasons but um it and cyber security in particular are quite small places so i'm sure everyone's uh, everyone's aware of the history there and uh, they won't benefit from it in the future Okay, so that's another story that I've heard that uh, you were involved in as well was a client purchasing a decryptor tool for quite a lot of money, but it didn't actually work. Hmm. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, that was one of the most exciting projects actually that we had. Uh, one of them um, was simply uh, um, the situation where where uh, the customer got encrypted. So they were completely smashed. Also production environment. This was happening during pandemic time when we were not allowed to travel, uh, but we still as a team had to travel. So we uh, had to get this government uh, strange permits, uh, documents, approvals, uh, exemptions and uh, all of that. So quite a lot of um, quite a lot of documents. And um, yeah, we had to travel. And uh, once we get on site, Nothing was working completely. Uh, they were smashed and they paid the ransom, which was uh, half a million euros. And uh, they negotiated that with uh, hackers. Yeah, quite a lot. And uh, they hired a negotiation company to actually do it uh, for them. I was not part of that, so I don't know the, that many details. But once they paid... And they got the decryptor and that decryptor was not working. And that was the moment when they called us and they said, hey, you know, that we, we don't really have that much of a way to recover from the backup. So please uh, come over with your team and help us to um, fix uh, everything that is out there. Uh, help us to recover the services to the state that it's uh, useful for us and so on. And uh, there was also another team from the Netherlands that was helping them. Absolutely great guys. So we had 
had a fun time. So when the sad things are happening, this is the, the situation where you make friends. So um, yeah, it was a fantastic cooperation. And um, what I decided to do, because sincerely, to, to, to some point that the job was easy because you're supposed to recover uh, components of the infrastructure. So I thought, I'm a little bit bored. Let's take that decryptor that's hypothetically not working. Let's learn what's the data structure while it's encrypted. What's the decryptor about? And uh, we decompiled it. And then we learned that uh, simply it's not that difficult how it was written. Uh, plus, um, the data structure was that some of the drives uh, that we were, we were for, I was, for example, working with the uh, like almost one terabyte uh, database that was stored on the on the VMware drive. So basically, uh, I took that and um, I learned that at the end of the file, um, then th there's like a stick, the uh, 512,024 uh, and so on byte keys. And not every file that, that was large was actually the same one. So sometimes it was even 512, sometimes it was uh, 2048 and so on. So you could see that that's just uh, 512 multiplied by X times. And the question is what this X was about. And um, it was about uh, amount of times how ransomware was getting into the file to encrypt it. And because the data was in use, and especially um, the, the ransomware was attacking um, virtual platform over there, so, so things were just in use, then it was not allowed uh, to actually continue. So it was crashing. And then it was getting into the files a couple of times like this. And every single time it started an encryption, then it was adding additional copy of a key to the end of the file. So we could see how many times ransomware tried to get access to the file by amount of the keys that were sticked at the end. As simple as this. But really the key to success was to understand how the crypto is working, how basically these algorithms were used, where we, is this key complete? Is there something else? And so on. So we tried to figure it out. Uh, and uh, to what point ransomware was actually encrypting over and over again, uh, that first eight megabytes that um, was actually by design supposed to be encrypted in order to just destroy a file, not to fully encrypt it. And uh, after lots of probes, we fixed the uh, decryptor uh, and uh, we made it actually working and we managed to recover uh, the customer's environment. So that was uh, very cool because it was a very satisfying project that when we were leaving their location, we were all like, wow, this is a job well done uh, because not only we helped them to recover, but we also um, automated that by fixing the, uh, the crypto that uh, there was uh, simply no hope for that. <laughs> so that's... Really interesting project. Was the decryptor not working because of these multiple passes that had failed passes that had happened on the file because it, it wasn't locking the file effectively? Exactly. Yeah. So that was actually one of the reasons. Plus, uh, the way how it was written uh, was also very poor. So um, yeah, we had to we had to help a, a little bit of a hacker's reputation, and we fixed the uh, decryptor. Yeah. And do you think it would have been possible to regain or decrypt the files without the decryptor or whether it was the specific knowledge within the, the failed decryptor tool that you needed? Mm, no, it would not be possible to do it, especially because uh, when, when we are thinking about some simple files, like let's say text files and so on, or any other really simple files that you could recover just an inner part of it uh, without that first eight megabytes, because... Mm, yeah, you can recover data in general because the, the middle data was not encrypted. But for places like databases and so on that require consistency and some integrity, then uh, not really, not really. And had the company struggled with the decision to pay the ransom? Obviously, they got a team of negotiators involved there. Had that been a decision they just, because of business demand, they just had to do that? Or was that something they struggled with the, the idea of doing? Yeah, they actually struggle with that because it's a lot of money. But the problem is that um, it's a factory that had to produce goods and it's also an international brand. Uh, so that affected um, quite a lot of their resources and they literally had to stop the full production. 
So uh, the problem is that when you are in this situation and you cannot recover from the backup because the backup is not up to date, it's not working, or you just simply don't have it, which was actually uh, quite a case over there, then uh, the only choice you got is to pay the ransom and the risk. And risk, of course. And I'm not saying through this that we should pay the ransom. No, we should have a. We should definitely not pay the ransom and have a good infrastructure that um, could actually save us from from any anything close to it. Uh, but um, for some reason, they decided to do it because uh, apparently they had uh, not much to lose already. Well, that is the challenge, and, and I think the attackers have got smarter and smarter at just disrupting the business in general. So we see things like the colonial pipeline and it wasn't like the attackers stopped them being able to turn the pumps on and move oil around different places but because they mm -hmm. disrupted the it systems they didn't know who wanted to buy the, the the goods and services and who was contacting them so that kind of disruption in something that's uh involved in a supply chain it, the pressure to just pay out the ransom and get access back as quickly as possible can be enormous what's your your general view on on paying out ransoms i know that we're seeing a lot of conversations around it you know some people saying well you could be funding terrorism or other people just saying well you're basically it's like investment rounds in software startups you're just giving them seed money then series a financing every time you're paying out these ransoms so they can develop more exploits what, what's your view on that in general um obviously i'm against it uh, it's uh, it's but sometimes I completely understand. I try, I try to be reasonable and and have a, like a fair opinion about that, because sometimes companies they might just simply have no choice, like in the case of our customer. But I think if we are searching for some good comparison over there, it's like you you know you're living in mafia city, and uh, just because you're living you live over there, you have to pay uh, some money uh, because otherwise if you don't do it then they're going to treat you badly. But why, why we are supposed to do it? That's that's absolutely a violence over there. And uh, that's kind of like what I think about uh, ransomware. It's a bit of a violence because you are uh, enforced sometimes to pay money because someone puts you in a position where if you don't do it, then you will not be able to kind of live because that's your business. So in order to save it, you have to uh, spend, spend that money. So... Um, yeah, th th there is a reason why it's called ransomware. It's uh, similar when you kidnap someone, yes, then if you don't pay, then this person's gonna die, for example. Sorry for maybe a little bit of a drastic example here, but if we compare that one, it's obviously not comparable, but kind of if we take the same pattern and we put it to, to business, it's a very similar situation that we are put in. So obviously it's illegal. Obviously it's a crime, it's it's terrorism um, or cyber terrorism. Maybe we should um, use that, that kind of a term. And uh, on the other side, it's very lucrative and uh, it has one characteristic. It's uh, almost untraceable. And if we combine these two things, more and more people are moving towards this direction. But luckily for us, the points of entry are relatively predictable because it's through users workstation quite often through unmanaged um, authentication services, like in a case of a colonial pipeline. Uh, it's also through our vendors, which is a little bit of more difficult subject as well, but that's also one of the, one of the top subjects in cybersecurity right now. But anything related with minimizing the risk of monitoring what runs and managing privilege access, maintaining typical points of entry like user's workstation and making sure that even though user will be crazy clicking on every possible phishing link, nothing's going to happen. So that that's kind of a direction that we have to move in. And if we're going to minimize the risk to the point where hackers going to and need to spend more time on us versus someone else, then they will just pick someone else. And that's what we want. I think your, your Mafia City example is, is a great example there that, again, in, in your Mafia City, people often will say, we don't want to pay taxes. We don't want to have to fund the police force until something goes wrong. And then suddenly, where's the police? Where's my protection against this? And it's, it's very much the same with ransomware, that people don't want to spend the money on securing systems, having pen tests done, understanding their exposure to risk. And then they get hit with something and they're forced to pay the money when, you know, perhaps if they'd have invested and had a, a steady flow over time, that would have actually been cheaper for them in the, the longer term. So I think that's a really nice way of, of framing the, the ransomware problem we're facing. 
So as we come towards the end of today's podcast, I've actually got a few questions that have been sent in by some of my colleagues who are all Paula J fans. So we'll start off with the first one. Uh, who first believed in you and what would you say to them now? Oh, that's a very good question. I, I like this kind it's of... very deep Yeah, question, very, very it? nice it's question. My colleague, Carl, he's, uh, he's <laughs> ah, very good with the deep questions. Of course. Uh, so, um, hmm. uh, I think um, it's like truly, truly in, in IT, because there were many people actually that believed. But uh, what I'm actually grateful for, it's going to be uh, two of my IT, uh, IT teachers one in the other university and another one in um, actually two at the university and another one in high school. And uh, for the fact, you know, starting with that, uh, they allowed me to stay in IT class during the breaks or after hours. Yeah, I'm grateful for that because that was not necessarily allowed and that they were not really you know, bl blocking that. They were just rather allowing it, seeing a, uh, like a kid's potential. They were not just saying, oh, time to go home or something, it's closed. But they were like, yeah, go ahead and play. And uh, th like their uh, pedagogical approach uh, to learning, uh, I think that's something that I'm grateful for. And also at university, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had uh, two two teachers, actually more, uh, but truly two teachers that were with me more um, when I was also spending my vacation in the server room uh, or when I had some questions also about cybersecurity. They were always very motivating. They were just not... Uh, Vicious that someone is like, you know, growing over there. So they will be like, oh, yeah, let's just uh, cut her wings or something. Uh, so I think uh, that kind of um, free to grow environment allowed me to gain more time to make my own decisions and make my own conclusions that uh, allowed me to, to grow even better. I think, um, yeah, that's kind of that, that meant for me a lot uh, in terms of. Uh, career if we could call it this way <laughs> and i think from the way you're talking about the, the people you hire in your your teams and the way you run your company i think that's translated into you doing that for other people bringing on people with an interest and nurturing them so they they have the room to grow and, and do fantastic things so uh it, it's nice to see that that you've sort of passed that on to the, the future um next question was what's a commonly held belief in the cybersecurity industry that you think needs challenging Ha. Huh. Um, well, actually, many. Uh, starting from the humanic part, uh, since uh, we we <laughs> had the last uh, question about that, I think that uh, cybersecurity people should be more open. And uh, there's lots of situations that you know someone learns something, and then there's this cool thing, and I don't want to share because I'm the greatest. Uh, I think the power is uh, nowadays in sharing, and uh, therefore I see a huge role of a GitHub. And um, whatever is out there, really, it doesn't matter um, what kind of code that is, as long as it's shared or whatever the tool is, as long as it's shared, then it, it gives the other person a choice whether it's going to be useful for me, I'm going to use it for my personal growth or not. So, so I like that. Uh, and uh, I think that needs uh, the biggest challenge over there, that we should think why we are actually doing what we are doing. It's not to show everybody else why we are the best, but more how can we contribute uh, to the, uh, let me it, maybe in a uh, more philosophical way to the gr greater and safer uh, world over there. But uh, yeah, that's kind of what I think uh, that needs uh, challenging right now. That's a, a lovely message to put out into the world. I think that we need to be more open and more transparent and share more. And it's something that people often talk about in the cybersecurity industry, but then we tend to fall back to our old ways of, of hiding things and being, mm -hmm. you know, the experts and people who will never say they don't know the answer to things. So that, that's a, a really, really nice thing to get out, I think. Um, and then the last question, well, one of the last questions we have is how do you balance your work life and your personal life being such a, a busy person? Oh, uh, <laughs> so it's always, always has been a challenge. Um, I try to uh, maintain that balance and I try to uh, be at home, but a couple of months uh, showed that it's not always the case. And uh, truly, uh, I've been traveling for, for a month without a break, uh, but uh, gladly, 
my uh, better half <laughs> could join me. So uh, so that's always good. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm not really rooted uh, anywhere uh, in terms of my, my approach. Um, so I think that whatever your close close relatives are, this is where your home is. And it, of course, it's sometimes tiring when you travel. But, um, but this is a very safe environment. Uh, and that's really what you need. And the place where you are here, here at home or whether in a hotel or maybe somewhere else, it doesn't matter. So... I try to balance it by um, by traveling uh, together. That's that's really nice that you get to bring your your personal life along with you and and share those experiences. And uh, I know it, it can be very hard traveling for work. I have no choice sometimes. <laughs> it can be very difficult traveling for work, but at least you get to see some of the places together. So I think that that's that's very nice. And uh, I guess one of the perks of of having your own company as well. So um, that's really good. And then finally, anything else that you would like to get out into the world or share with the audience? Hmm. I, I think I will, I will stick to my message regarding the uh, being a little bit more transparent uh, about what we do in cybersecurity. Uh, more we know, a better um, approach to our infrastructure, more safety we're able to in implement in our infrastructures. And... Um, I wish there was like less uh, negativeness about uh, cybersecurity, but maybe that's just my uh, naive approach out there because uh, I really like to share things. Uh, so, um, so, so I would love to see that one more. And uh, in cybersecurity, knowledge is power. So, uh, for that reason, I think um, we, if you are uh, loving cybersecurity, we should. Keep growing, keep learning uh, continuously. And if you got something interesting to share, don't hesitate and maybe someone else is going to use it. As we today use internet, uh, different free or paid resources to gain knowledge, uh, we should, uh, I think, start um, to give uh, back a little bit. So that's just my uh, message out there. And if people want to find you or follow you online, what's the best way to do that? Oh, the best way is going to be um, simply... I think LinkedIn. Uh, I'm more active there. So under Paul Ionuskiewicz. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. So at uh, Paula Secure. Um, but uh, I'm actually a little bit less over there because there's so much going on in cybersecurity. So I prefer to share some posts, articles and so on on LinkedIn. And uh, of course, our two websites that you mentioned before. So secureacademy.com or secure.pl as a, our general company, generic company website and secureacademy.com for education, uh, where uh, you can learn more updates about what we do because uh, it's also our blog uh, and we post over there information about our programs projects about new tools because uh, it's not only my myself it's of course the whole team and uh yeah i would i would definitely uh encourage you uh to to do it absolutely and i'd second that the the blog always has interesting takes on windows security and tools and things that are out there it's uh it's really worth checking out so paula thank you so much for joining us today on the adventures of alice and bob it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you and hearing thank about you, your, your passion for sharing knowledge and just diving into things and the way you've approached growing you. your company and you know moving the cybersecurity industry forward. As always, thanks to my colleagues at Beyond Trust who make this podcast possible. And a special shout out to our super producer, Jesse, as it's his last show with us today before he dons a shirt and tie and becomes head of production at Pro Series Media. So thanks, Jesse, for your patience and support with getting this podcast going. And once again, thanks, Paula, for joining us today. I hope to have you on again in the future. Thank you so much. With pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it.